everybody, and welcome to Life TK, the podcast where we talk to women writers, editors, and journalists in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond about the jobs they did when they were in their 20s. My name is Amanda Woitis, and I'm your host. Before we get started, I wanted to do a little housekeeping and remind you that if you haven't already, please follow the podcast on Twitter at Life TK Podcast and on Instagram at Life underscore TK. Subscribe to my newsletter by going to lifetk.com and scrolling down to the bottom of the About page and clicking Updates. In this month's newsletter, I annotate the list of 37 books I've read so far in 2017 and ask what I should read to make my goal of 52. Send me suggestions at amanda at lifetk.com. Oh, and check out my Patreon by clicking the Support tab on my website. Okay, now on to the fun stuff. My interview this week is with poet Arisa White, and before we dig in, I'm going to give you a little background on how this interview came to be, because it's pretty special. When I launched Life TK, I posted the project on a couple of related Facebook groups, and the response I got was awesome. Women were nominating themselves to be interviewed, but what was cool too were the women who emailed me to say, hey, you know who's doing great work and who you should be talking to is this woman or that woman, Let me make an introduction. Women supporting women is my favorite thing, and Arisa was recommended to me by someone in that group. And when I went to her website and read her bio, I understood why. She's published four poetry collections plus numerous chapbooks, and you should check them all out. Through my work at the Poetry Foundation, this was the first year of my life where I actually read poetry, and I loved it. It's given me a new lens to view the world through, and it's just enriched my life. So if you've never read a collection, let me recommend to you Reese's Hurrah's Nest, which was a finalist for the 2013 Wheatley Book Awards, the California Book Awards, and nominated for an NAACP Image Award. Her second collection, A Penny Saved, was inspired by Polly Mitchell, a woman who was imprisoned by her husband in their Omaha home for 10 years. Her most recent is You're the Most Beautiful Thing That Happened, published by Augury Books. So, three recommendations. Go forth and read some poetry today. Arisa received her MFA from the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and she's a Cave Canem Fellow, which is an amazing organization that was created to help increase representation of African-American writers in poetry. Arisa became a librettist. Side note, we are really elevating things over here at Life TK. This is our first opera writer. When she was awarded a grant from the city of Oakland to create the libretto and score for postpart in the opera. And that same year, she was awarded a grant to fund the Dear Gerald Project, which takes a personal and collective look at absent fathers. She's been nominated for Pushcart Prizes. She's done residencies at the Rose O'Neill Literary House, Hedgebrook. You get my drift. Really accomplished. When I asked Teresa if she could send me a summary of the job she held in her 20s, she replied with no fewer than 17 positions. So unfortunately, this interview is not comprehensive, but I did my best and I think you're gonna love it. Let's find out what Arisa was up to in her 20s. When I was at Sarah Lawrence, I was a career assistant there. And I did that pretty much for all four years while I was undergrad. And and as a result of being there, I could see like the difference 
job opportunities and internships that were coming through. So I had a kind of like first look at them. And the first of exciting internships that came about was working with Urban Bush Women Dance Company in New York City. And then it eventually turned into a summer gig that led to going to Florida because I helped them during my academic year put together their summer institute in Tallahassee, Florida. So I got to look at all of the applications from dancers and musicians and pretty much kind of be in on the process of deciding who were going to be the participants. And what I loved about it was one that I sort of like parlayed my way to uh, to to Florida because at first the administrators were like not at all thinking about taking me and and I just remember having a conversation with the ED. Eventually it turned into like, yeah, you should definitely be in Florida with us because you know everyone's name, you know who they are, and so I wind up going to Florida for a month. And one of the exciting things about it was while the dancers, like there would be like a point in the afternoon where everyone comes together after taking all of their various classes and lectures. And Jawale, who is the artistic director of Urban Bush Women, she um, was putting together a dance, I believe, on one of the Orishas. And I think it was Oshun. They were moving and they, there was drumming going on and then she just felt like something was missing. And then out of nowhere, she gets on the microphone and she calls me up to the stage and she's like, Arisa, I need for you to write a poem, some kind of text to go along with this movement. And okay. so they like, they ran, you know, they ran the movement that they were rehearsing and I just sort of sat there, watched them. And then, like, wrote, you know, like a kind of sonnet-like poem, 14 lines, something relatively short but still meaty enough. And everyone was, like, so impressed that I was able to, like, do this in, like, less than 20 minutes, like, come up with this, like, really great, great poem. You can't see my face right now, but I'm in awe of what Arisa just described, mainly because that's my nightmare, being asked to improvise and write like that. It was just one of those moments where where I just love the idea of just of that sense of spontaneity and then to realize like I could I could be a poet in every situation that I'm in, right? And then to have yeah. like this um to have Jowale sort of like recognize that talent in me and then call me forward to like write a piece and, and I was able to deliver just even sort of astounded me and my ability to respond to the moment and be open and be able to find, like, fresh language um, to go along with the overall feeling and choreography at the same time. As a senior, actually more so as, like, a junior or something like that, I was studying abroad in Ghana. I applied for a programming internship at Jacob's Pillow Dance Festival, which is in the Berkshires, Massachusetts. And what was what's really great about the internship at uh, Jacob's Pillow is that's super hands-on. It's like you are essentially like help helping actively help run the festival for the summer. So I interned with the general manager. So this is sort of like I was in charge of the outside 
um, performances and making sure programs were in order for the outside performances the artists were taking care of. I had to do curtain announcements and so and like ask people for money. Like, it was just really great. Like it puts me out of a lot of um just like a lot of my anxiety around talking in front of people. So that was just like really exciting and action-packed summer of like dancers coming from all over the world and there would just be like these great moments like after um, performances we would like gather and have a bonfire all of the interns and the techs and the the visiting dancers and Jacob's pillow is just like because it's in the the Berkshire mountains it just feels like you're so close to the sky at night and the stars. You can yeah. literally just, like, pick from the sky. And so we would have these bonfires where the night just seemed to, like, open up into this, like, dark cavern, this, like, bowl of just, like, midnight blueness. And there was the sky. And there was, like, no sense of where did the sky end and where did it begin. Okay, seriously, that description. If you do not read poetry... Come on. After kind of finishing that internship and graduating from Sarah Lawrence, I was actually asked back to like come and help sort of manage a group of dancers from Ghana, actually, um, because they were doing a a kind of celebration for Catherine Dunham. I had to like manage this uh, dance group from Ghana, which was really challenging at times because their like sense of time was just entirely different. And so I would, like, arrive. Like, they had to be somewhere at 9, so I would, like, arrive at, like, like 7.45 just to make sure that we would eventually get there at, like, 9 o'clock. And sometimes we'll get there at, like, (laughs) 9.15. So it's, like... It was partly, like, great, but it was, like, at, at the end of that week, I was just, like, I am not going to be in charge of getting Canadian dancers anywhere on time ever again. Just to kind of like fast forward. So like in my later 20s, I wind up becoming a a projects coordinator for the Margaret Jenkins Dance uh, Company in San Francisco when after I graduated um, from graduate school in UMass, my partner and I took a month-long road trip and um, we were totally unemployed for like a very long time, and then this, and then a job opportunity came available at Margaret Jenkins Dance Company. It was just like perfect, like it just fit in all of the things that, you know, I love about the arts, arts administration, being able to like actively manage a dance company was just a a, a, little, a sweet dream of mine to have actualized. So oh, so just before I went off to graduate school. So I decided to take like a two-year break just, yeah, just because I'm like, I don't want to just go from like undergrad right into graduate school because in part, I didn't know what I wanted to do. At one point, I was thinking, I want to become a chef and I want to work with like (laughs) organic foods and feed people so that they get healthy and not about just like feeding people to just you know, satisfied our cravings, but how can we, like, how can I return back to the the healing qualities of eating? So I was, like, really into 
that after for a while and especially since I was thinking about coming out to California and so I was thinking about that I was thinking should I get a PhD should I do an MFA in creative writing poetry one of my undergraduate professors is Sarah Lawrence uh, Regina Arnold who is unfortunately no longer with us was just really great and helping me decide like what it is that I wanted to do and she's like, if you got a acceptance letter from all three of those possible programs, which one would you go to? And I was like, I would do an MFA. Yeah, I just spent three years in Western Mass writing poems and teaching um, in the undergraduate English department, creative writing department. During the summers, I would get sort of like a job as a writing instructor at the Center for Talented Youth, which is run by Johns Hopkins University. Yeah, so we were staying on a college campus in Saratoga Springs, New York, and Saratoga has, um, what are, they have like, like horse races there. Like, so yeah, like the so track like, there, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it was just, yeah, so we were kind of in that kind of community and at the same time being on this campus and living in these sort of crappy dorms and teaching <laughs> From, from I think from like nine to six, it was like a really oh, intensive man. program, and I was working with middle school students, Ooh. and um, but they were great actually. Like I had like one student was was an actor on The Soprano, so it was kind of like what? these really <laughs> interesting, yeah, these really interesting kids, and they just wrote really really well. Like they amazed me with their talent and their willingness to like try the different like writing exercises that I had them try. And, um, and during that time I was working on, I was working on a book. It eventually became a book. I was working on a manuscript inspired by the story of Polly Mitchell, who was held captive in her home. And so you know, whenever I had a free time, like free time after like hanging out with the other work, um, the other instructors, and I would just write. And I would also write alongside with them in the classroom because we spent so much time together. And I just remember telling them at the end of the summer, like how much their writing influenced me and is influencing this like project I'm working on. And so when the book got published, I like thanked the students in it because they were just so fabulous. Yeah, and then I just had like a really great time with my colleagues. They were also other graduate students from different places around the country and we would just spend time like going out on the town at Saratoga Springs and drinking and smoking cigars at the <laughs> cigar bar. And yeah, and then like, you know, gathering ourselves up to like go teach <laughs> like at nine o'clock in the morning. And so did you finish your manuscripts in that summer or did it take? No, because I needed to stop. I was like, you know, I was getting through different sections of it and then I just couldn't figure out like where to go next. And so I had to give it a break for a while and then I picked it back up and in 2010 and was able to finish it then. Like I said in the intro, Arisa has had so many amazing jobs and she's about to talk about the time she worked at Coco Bar in Brooklyn. And I just thought it would be a good idea for us to pause collectively as a podcast and gather ourselves for our first Alice Walker experience here on Life TK. 
Are you ready? Here we go. I think, you know, working so with Sensei Angel Kyoto Williams. So I met Angel when I was actually a teenager in Brooklyn, and she owned the Cocoa Bar um, with Rebecca Walker, Alice Walker's daughter. And it was like right in my neighborhood. And I would pass by and be like, what is this place that, like, that just seemed to come out of my imagination? Because I just remember the, like, the day I discovered Cocoa Bar in Brooklyn, my mom and I were having a conversation. And I was like, I want to open up a cafe that's a bookstore. And like, it has it has a cyber lounge in the back. So this is the 90s, like 1990s. Yeah. So we call, call things cyber lounges. Yeah. So, like, and so I'm like, I want this, I want that, and I want that. And she's like, that sounds amazing. And so then we're, like, driving one day, and we pass by this new place that opened up on, like, um, was, I think it was, like, on Lafayette and Green or something. And um, and so I'm like, oh, my God, that's my dream. Who has, like, realized my dream? So I, I wind up going in, and then I eventually wind up getting a job um, while I was in uh, high school there. And... And then I just stayed friends with Angel. So Angel is, you know, now a sensei, a reverend, a Zen Buddhist in the tradition of Zen Buddhism. And um, and so I was working with her right after I graduated from Sarah Lawrence and first helping her, like, uh, market and publicize her first book, Being oh, Black. Cool which is really an exciting book because it was bringing attention to just like the cultural resources of African-Americans to thrive and survive within this culture and using certain spiritual practices that have been a part of that survival. And so I just did like a lot of like, I was pretty much like her executive assistant writing PR, like press releases, media alerts, contacting bookstores all over the nation, setting up like, you know, readings and talks and lectures. You know, one of the privileges of being, you know, born and raised in New York City is that I had access to all of these cultural resources. And, and, And that is what I learned. I learned that if if a space isn't offering you something, you figure out how to find it outside of that space. You have to create the pathways to what it is that you want, right? And yeah. so, um, so learning to speak up for what I needed, and then getting the support of you know of those in charge really helped me realize like I that's gonna be my that's what I'm gonna have to like hone as a poet. <laughs> And in our culture, I'm going to have to ask for what I need, develop the relationships and and network so that I can support myself, both, you know, financially, spiritually, um, and creatively. I had to figure, I had to be like a hustler, (laughs) you know, be active in creating what I, what I needed. So, and I still do that. (laughs) Like, I'm still doing that. Do you have like a more, um, maybe like a more recent example? So, okay, so for this past summer at the 
Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco, I uh, curated this reading series with um, Kave Kanem poets. I'm a part of Kave Kanem, um, which is a foundation that supports and nurtures the, you know, the poetry of uh, African and Africa and, and poets from the African diaspora. So I knew one of the members of the board for the museum because we both went to Hedgebrook in 2010. And so I contacted Sarah and I was like, Sarah, I have this idea. Um, it would be great to have poets respond to the exhibits that are going on um, at the museum. And she's like, that's a great idea. And so she put me in charge with their program director. We applied for grants with poets and writers so that we can pay the, the poets. And it was just so great because what wound up happening is that it became a way for the poets to re-engage and invigorate their own writing process by looking at artwork. And it's very much a long tradition of writers responding to artwork, which is you know, called Ephrasis Poetry. And so the poets got to just go in and just like take take in the the work and see how the work was going to inspire poetry, imagery, language for them. And and as a result they were like annotating these paintings and installations with their own lives. And so the artwork became oh, cool. after this after the summer I couldn't see a painting just as the painting on the wall anymore. I saw it as, you know, as a poet's experience with fertility or another poet's experience with police violence, uh, another poet's experience with being mixed race and, you know, always having to kind of operate in a sort of liminality um, so, you know, it, it was just really fascinating that the, the artwork started to resonate with with so many more voices. And it was just That's great. Different. We just had, like, a wonderful turnout. Folks would ask questions um, about how they made their poems, and really great conversations were um, just kind of nurtured around the art. So it's not just this passive engagement, but how do we how can we engage, you know, art in our lives, you know, not just as, like, something to look at and then walk away, but to, like, hold it in conversation with how we're living today. And then we had this culminating event, and so many people, like, about 80 folks showed up, and it was, like, really diverse and intergenerational, and it just made me feel so excited and loved and cared cared for in a space where, you know, just culturally where our artists are just marginalized and and you know, and our voices are either it, it either has to fit one kind of narrative, otherwise you're not heard. So yeah, it just just felt it felt like moments of beauty when when so much in our culture and during these political war crazy mm -hmm. times really attempts to destroy that kind of harmony in us. That's really awesome. And all of that just came from you, like, having an idea. Yeah. Totally. Just asking. And now, you know, we may do it again next for the next summer. So it's just, so it's great to see, like, what can develop when we, when we want, when we want to see something in our, in our lives, you know? Yeah. 
Where do you find inspiration? I find inspiration and I'm very much inspired by like my family, personal experiences, what's going on in the news, larger questions about why do we do things to each other? <laughs> um, yeah, just a lot of why. I think yeah, kind of, you know, really honoring that that sort of that sort of childlike innocence that ask the questions of why, you know, why is the sky blue? Why are we at war with each other? Why, you know, haven't we said sorry? And and that just leads me to attempt to answer it. I'm always super interested in, um, like, writer's process. Yeah, like, I kind of give myself, like, six months of just, like, writing and not getting sort of stressed out about where to send stuff. And so mm-hmm. I was just like, write, write, write. And then, you know, sometime around the summer where life seems to be more interesting outside instead of, like, yeah. at my desk, <laughs> that's when I kind of enter into a revision mode. And, yeah, so I kind of return to the things I've been writing. I revise. And then come around the fall, I start to send things out fall and um, winter time. Um, but I'm always, like, looking out for, you know, where I can send things that will, you know, publishers who will kind of take whatever it is that I'm working on. So, yeah, and, like, most most recently I, I had a collection when um, the um, – Per Diem Poetry Prize, which Daniel Handler started. And so that was like a chapbook kind of length amount of poems. And so that book, um, Fish Walking and Other Bedtime Stories for My Wife, <laughs> was inspired by a friend of, like a friend of mine, Selma Mason Fraser, and I were like, we kind of gave each other a sort of assignment or a task to, to like write humorous, scatological, <laughs> and um, I forget the third, oh, the, and it was a, um, a word limit, so we can only do like 75 words. And so the idea was we would write this for an entire week, and then we would try to combine our 75 words together to make an entire piece. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah, so this is kind of our... Um, are sort of uh, uh, restraints on our work. And um, and so I wrote during the week of, like, Halloween or something. It was really interesting. And so I was, like, trying to do humor and trying to do sort of, like, scatological stuff. And, um, and it was fun to do because the writing wound up being really strange and surreal and somehow magical at the same time, too. And um, And so at the end of that week, and I was noticing, too, I was writing at the same hour. So it was kind of like around 10 or 11. And so these little 75-word things, my wife would be like, what are you writing? I'm like, bedtime stories for you. And she's like, what? <laughs> and so I would read them. And they're like these abstract, magical, surreal little things. And she's like, that's not a bedtime story. My mind is going. I'm like trying to like decipher what the hell you're talking about. Um but it was a really great experiment. And so then Soma and I try to put the pieces together, but they just weren't working. Like, 
so she's a fiction writer and a wonderful one at that. And my work was like very much just very deeply emotional, lyrical. So it was just like not fitting. So we were just like it was, it was like it was successful in its own right. And so I kind of kept those poems, and I'm like, oh, maybe I'll make them into a little kind of chat book. And so those pieces got, you know, one piece got published here, and then I would, like, read them out loud, and people just sort of loved them. They would, like, chuckle. They thought they were funny. And so then when I saw this prize that Daniel Handler was uh, sort of supporting, I sent it to, to that, and it, and it totally won. And I was like, oh, that's super exciting. So, like, for, you know, most other books, you know, really just I've submitted them during open reading periods, usually mm-hmm. – I'm just kind of working on and like something just starts to accumulate based on the questions I'm asking. So my most recent collection, You're the Most Beautiful Thing That Happened, started like in 2009 when a few friends of mine were like, Arisa, why don't you write some gay poems? But it became fascinating, right? Like what is a yeah. gay poem? What, what is a black poem? What is a woman poem, right? And yeah. what's an urban poem? And and so I had to think about that. And in thinking about that, I came, like I would you know, you know, did my most rigorous research by looking on Wikipedia, and I found this <laughs> um, <laughs> I found this list of terms for gay and lesbian, and it's like these international words. And there was like a box for the translations, and the box for translations was like the most fascinating space for me. And I just felt like that's how we are as social beings. We're in the space of translation. Something's yeah. lost. And what is gained may not be truly representative of who we are. And it's always this place of approximation. But things would translate into stuff like big butterfly, glass, uh, like stranger, little deer, So there was, like, terms that would be, like, derogatory mostly. Mm -hmm. And they were often, like, nature-based. They were feminine. They were, yeah, they were domestic. And and all of a sudden, I was like, the space of translation is a very feminine space. And, And what is it, you know, when we think about homophobia, we think about sexism, there's this place of a sort of violence and hatred around the feminine. And when we see it too much in men, even even the, you know, the performance of that femininity in women is often an uh, invitation in vi- for violence in our, our rape culture. Um, and even the act of having to perform that femininity is a violence to the South or these, you know, these, these, these concepts around how one should be a woman. And so just thinking about loss, right? So translation is loss, loss, grief, loss as like bodies, queer bodies, LGBT bodies being killed, loss, language as loss. And so then this idea of the queer, the queer gay poem must reckon with, with all of that, right? So, and then how is that reckoning different from being, you know, black in America? woman in America. So these really good, interesting questions started to come, and I just wrote, 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 wrote. And then eventually I just get to a place where I just feel done, and then then I'll send it out. So it sounds like major themes in your career, like hustling and also having 
you know, connections and not being afraid to reach out to people with your ideas. Yeah, yeah definitely. Because they can take you to, like, some really exciting places. Like, you know, I had an idea to write an opera. I've never written an opera before. Um, I saw that, that you're, like, a librettist, too. It's really <laughs> interesting. But, they, but I, like, I, you know, just thinking, because sometimes the work itself wants to do something different than just being on the page as a poem. And... And so, and especially if you are excited by collaborations as I am, the idea that something can just become another thing through the, the, through the like creative, like through creative culmination, right? And so, yeah, and so I'm just like, I have this idea. I've always wanted to like to do this, to try it at least. And I was able to like get a grant to like write a libretto and then work with a composer to um you know score score the the music and um score the lyrics and so and it was just extraordinary and and time consuming and yeah <laughs> but it was just like amazing to like go to rehearsals and and then to hear my words being sung it's important to just try because yeah because then you'll realize that so many things open up for you that didn't open that weren't as obvious before when you were like you know what I want to I want to be a librettist were you ever like intimidated oh I'm afraid like (laughs) afraid is a part of my emotional box um yes I was afraid (laughs) and I completely doubted myself I'm like what am I doing? I don't know what I'm doing. You know, all of that yeah. comes up. It's always present. And So what do you um, tell yourself when you feel that? Okay, I tell myself, what is, what is it that you need? You know, mm-hmm. like obviously this fear is coming up because something's not tended to. It's like, you know, it's like you, you know, it's like you arrive at the edge of something and then your body is saying no. <laughs> it's like yeah. You can't just go over danger. that edge. Yeah, it's like danger. And so, but if you approach the edge and there is a bridge, there's a different kind of response. So I think it's like, you know, for me, when I'm in those moments, it's I, I'm asking, my body is telling me, you need to put something in place for us to cross over into this thing. And so for me, that was working with a composer that I I knew for a very long time. We actually met at my first um, teaching gig at the Berkeley Carroll School in Park Slope, Brooklyn. Oh, cool. Um, So Jessica, yeah, Jessica Jones is like the jazz musician, jazz band person there. And so, yeah, so knowing Jessica Jones and having known her for like almost a decade and I performed on some of her albums. So I had that relationship in place. So my collaborator was someone who is a friend. We had relationships through different other projects. So that right there is a supportive grounding that makes me feel brave. And so for my own, like for my own self, I wind up going into a kind of like historical research of opera and different kinds of opera and I'm listening to opera, reading the the librettos, reading librettos by poets who 
you know, written operas like Langston Hughes and Toni Morrison. And, um, well, Toni's not a poet, but she's very magical and lyrical. Kind of acquainting myself with the history of writers writing librettos sort of gives, you know, totally gave me more kind of brave ground to stand on. And then when it comes down to the sort of like technical stuff, I just, I took a lyric writing class, an online lyric writing class at the Berkeley School of Music. So here I basically learned the sort of like basic, you know, structure for how to write different like song systems, right? And you know, working with different rhyming families and, yeah, and just, like, learning things like fricatives and, you know, (laughs) making sure that, like, stress syllables are in alignment with stress notes, you know? So I I developed this vocabulary for doing this kind of work so that my anxiety around these things are okay, you know? Yeah, Yeah, and then when people show up and then you have to actually turn folks away because there's not enough room (laughs) in the theater, it made me realize, like, oh, people want this. Like, they totally, totally want this. And that's what then gets me all juiced up, too. And so, you know, on Facebook, when Facebook would let you know, like, things like, oh, two years ago, you were doing this on this day. Yeah. And so, yeah, so a lot of the kind of um, opera stuff was coming up. The opera is called Postpartum. So it really postpartum rehearsal or, you know, opera, you know, the opera singers are now in the studio or both. So, and every time those things come up, then the um, act, the actresses and the musicians would be like, Arisa, we need to do this again. We need to do this again. So now I'm in a place of different, of different fear. <laughs> so oh, yeah. after this, after the sneak preview, I was able to get like fiscal sponsorship so that I can apply to much larger grants so that we could further develop it. Oh, cool. um, because the, init- the initial grant I got was for, like, $5,000. Then we were able to crowdfund for, like, I think, like, an additional, like, $7,000. And and so in order to, like, really put on the idea to, like, do a full production, I was kind of budgeting for about, like, 50000 50, to 80000 And so that needed fiscal sponsorship to get higher um, amount of grants like that. So I was able to get fiscal sponsorship. I submitted a lot of letter of it, like LOIs or whatever they call them. And so we would then get accepted into the second round of things, right, to ask for a yeah. full proposal, which was great. It was just kind of super exciting um, yeah. for things like the MAP fund. And, and then we wouldn't get the final grant. So I was kind of, so now I'm in this place where, you know, where, you know, Jessica Jones and some of the singers are like, let's do this again. And I really want to, but I don't, now I'm in this place where I'm like, we need money. I don't know how to do this without money now. So I have to, have to figure something else out because I also know for me, I want to rework the libretto. And so how to make space for that, how to enter into something again that I was actually, like, I wanted to do this opera, but I was also as equally afraid of doing it. So how to enter back into something 
it has daunted me during the entire process. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I'm in this really interesting space of returning, which I think leaves me, like, how do I return to this thing again? How do I make it new? How do I not feel sort of hurt by not getting those grants to kind of, you know, push the project forward when I had all of that momentum? Now I just sort of right. feel like, mm, you know. So, yeah, see, it's fear, anxiety, doubt, just happens at so many different stages, even when you've been supported by something. Oh, good news. Fear and anxiety at every stage. Okay, actually, I do find it kind of encouraging to know that even people who succeed in overcoming one big obstacle, say, teaching yourself how to write an opera, still face a lot of other challenges and moments of doubt. It sort of takes the pressure off in a weird way. Knowing that it's not one big hurdle, it's many big hurdles. Now it's not just about my my talent. It's like it's about that the energy of producing and curating and and administrating and organizing and schmoozing and like all of that that has to happen as well. Yeah, the energy for schmoozing is not something to <laughs> take lightly. <laughs> yes. So what was either like the biggest challenge or the biggest lesson you learned in your 20s, would you say? You know, I was laid off by the Margaret Jenkins Dance Company during the whole recession, like mm-hmm. 2008. Okay, just to recap an episode from a couple of interviews ago. I'm currently going through a layoff that my company has turned into a months-long odyssey. So I'm greatly interested in what Arisa is about to say. And I was, and I just got my own apartment. I was, you know, I was just feeling very adult. Yeah. And um, and then I had no job. And and I was far away from family. Um, I was, you know, no longer in a romantic relationship. And I was alone in a way that I've never felt alone before. And so I had to figure out how to kind of apply for unemployment, apply for food stamps, and then really begin to break down my ego around having to do those things. So, you know, I go off to college and I think, oh, my degrees are going to secure me from poverty. Um, It's going to shield me and protect me from somewhat the circumstances that I grew up in. And that wasn't the case. I, you know, I, like I have a BA and MFA and I'm applying for food stamps. It was a time where I had to shift my understanding of who I, I thought I was what I thought education can guarantee me, um, rather a degree could guarantee me. Um, And I had to think about how to build community in a way that allowed me to be vulnerable, um, to share my hurt, my depressive self. And I realized I needed friendship in a way that I've never um, needed before. And that meant showing up. Mm-hmm. at my most vulnerable self and that felt really difficult and I you know it and it showed me how much I hid behind certain things like oh I went to this school or I did this or I did that 
and how how those things sort of were a kind of mask for me. And so when that mask was taken away, who who is Arisa? Who is she? What does she want? Are, you know, I was unable to, like, be vulnerable with folks and ask for help. And so I had to learn to do that and sort of pay attention to my my needs, my ability to articulate my needs to other people. And I no longer had the structure of support of school, of family, um, of neighborhood in the sense of like, when you grow up in a place, there's a way in which this space sort of nurtures you, you know, like you can just like walk into a cafe and you remember yourself like when you were a teenager there. You know, I had no kind of, kind of place history. Everything was new against me, you know. And so it was hard to kind of make sense of who I was becoming because I I didn't feel a continuum of myself. So I had to do a lot of I had to do a lot of self-reflection. I had to I had to like break up and deconstruct the stories I had about myself around not feeling good enough, not feeling valued enough and realizing too those kinds of feelings were reinforced culturally Mm -hmm. about being a black woman, about being a lesbian woman in society as well, that, you know, I'm, I'm not supposed to succeed. I'm not supposed to survive. And so I think during that time I did, you know, I did a lot more spiritual work. I did a lot more meditation and yoga and walking in nature. Um, so that I can so that I can live a life that wasn't about being a straight A student, about being a good daughter, a good sister, about being a good girlfriend, right? It wasn't about yeah. the performance of a role. Because I didn't know myself if I wasn't those things. And that and that was like a lot of the sadness that was coming up. And so I had to create my own structures of value. Um, and encouragement because school wasn't there, job wasn't there, right? Where, you know, I had to think about where my shame was coming from. And so I just, my heart was just like opening and breaking in so many different ways. And and that was a huge and invaluable lesson because I had to see myself clearly and and to love what I was seeing as well, unconditionally. But I feel like people who are around our age, especially women, we kind of grew up during that time where young women were really being told, like, you can be anything you want to be, but Mm -hmm. make sure you go to college and get an education so you can get a job and you don't have to depend on anyone. So I feel like I really built my identity around, like, being a hard worker Oh, yeah. And now I feel like, well, people don't want me to work. It almost feels like. like, (laughs) I'm like, no, but this is what I'm supposed to be doing. What advice would you have for young women today? I say, you know, first thing that's coming to mind is, like, keep a journal. Yeah. Even if you're a writer or not, or, you know, find a way to just, like, record your thoughts, how you're feeling. Um, Just create a space where you can reflect on things that are happening in your body, around you, your um, the questions that are coming up. Because something happens when you 
look at that journal like a few years later and you can see how much you've grown or you can see your patterns. You can see what's emerging from your life. Mm-hmm. And so it just allows you to witness yourself in, in a more clear way, in a way that has nothing to do with what society is saying. So it's like, I think, find the ways where you can make your own narrative of being, where you create a space for yourself, where you feel enough, where you feel like the most beautiful thing in the world, um, where you can just breathe and, you know, be, be you, be you um, with no questions. That's such a beautiful piece of advice to end on. I love it. You might be starting to notice a pattern here in the episodes, and Arisa might be the strongest example yet. Take your ideas and find a way to do them. Be a hustler. You can't win a grant if you don't apply. You can't publish a piece or a poem or a collection of poems if you don't write. You can't write an opera if you don't give it a try. I also loved what Arisa said about taking feelings of doubt and finding out what you need to feel more confident. I think too often we feel anxiety and we talk to someone about it and that someone just tells us to suck it up. But if you listen to yourself and break it down into actionable steps, like, okay, what do I need to accomplish this task? The possibilities are endless. I want to thank Arisa White for talking with me and sharing her time and all of her insights. Please read her work, and I know I'm not alone in saying that we're all going to be really interested to see where she takes postpartum the opera next. All right, that's it for now. See you next time. Bye.